This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Uh, this is Paul Verschur with uh, Tony Prescott and the Cognitive Science Network podcast. And today we're here with Gary Marcus, who's one of the speakers at our BCPT summer school. And Gary, you're, you really try to come up uh, with an alternative view on how we can think about, if you want, cortical computation, contrasting your proposal to this notion of a canonical microcircuit, right? So, so what, what do you find problematic uh, with this notion of a canonical microcircuit, and how do we define a canonical microcircuit? It looks like a search for the one true ring that will rule them all. And searches for one true ring to rule them all usually fail. And I have some specific reasons why I'm, I'm skeptical about this one. Like I said, at the broadest level, I don't think we're going to find one true ring. I don't think we're going to find a silver bullet. I think that the brain is really complicated, and I think you can see that complication at any level at which you try to analyze the brain, whether you're talking about connectivity between different areas or whether you're looking at the number of neuron types or all of the different uh, proteins that are trafficked in synapses. There's enormous complexity. I think that in physics, people seek a kind of parsimony. They're trying to find a grand unified theory in, in a few tiny principles. And I don't think that that's plausible for biology. There was a quote I used to like from Francis Crick. I might not get the words exactly right, but it's something like... Um, in uh, parsimony is, is a valuable tool in, in physics. In biology, it's a dangerous implement. Mm -hmm. And then I met him once, and I told him that this was my favorite quote. And he said, yeah, in, in physics, we have laws. In biology, there are gadgets. <laughs> right. And hoping that you're going to find the entire answer in a single mm -hmm. gadget is, is, I think, unrealistic. But now, in, in just celebrating complexity, you might not gain understanding either. No, I'm not... I'm not saying that, for example, the right way forward is to just have a big, massive computer simulation where we don't know any of the operating principles and, and we just sort of worship the complexity. I think what we want are intermediate levels of explanation, um, in, intermediate levels of, of um, components that, that mm -hmm. map on to other levels. So in understanding a computer, you want to understand a series of levels starting from the transistor and moving up to AND gates and OR gates, microprocessors, um, operating systems, software, etc. And I think that we're we probably want to find something similar in understanding probably any biological system. There, mm -hmm. there are going to be low-level components that contribute to higher-level components. But then what's, what's, what are we trying to explain? Is it like in the MAR sense, some overall functionality that we can push into a computational level of description, which implementation we have to <coughs> identify? Or is it another set of functionalities that will decompose along a different set of uh, levels of description? Well, I think the Mars sense is a really good starting place where you want to understand the relation between comp computation and specific algorithms and how those specific algorithms are realized. And I, I think you might ask for even more than that, but I think that that's, that's a really good starting point. I think sometimes in neuroscience, people lose sight of the mapping between these things. And I think that that's really what the field should be about. So if you're talking about like mapping the whole brain, that's a great thing to do. But mapping the whole brain isn't by itself a question about how that relates to computation. Mm -hmm. And I think that we need to keep our eye on that ball. What we're trying to do is to find, let's say, motifs that are represented mm -hmm. neurally that are repeated over and over mm -hmm. again, and how those connect in turn to the computational right. motifs. Computational. But so to set up the context of the discussion, if we then want to 
let's say, de declare some higher level functions that we want to explain in the Anthony implementational terms, what are the higher level functions that we need to explain? Well, we don't fully know that. I mean, I think we're, we're um, I use this metaphor in the talk about we're working from two ends of the tunnel and we're trying to meet in the middle. The truth is we don't have a well-defined uh, starting point on, on the higher level cognition side. We, we have guesses. Um, the place where we best have answers are like we know some very specific things about individual channels and things like that on the neural side. And then on the other side, we have some guesses about what's going on cognition. We don't know for sure. I can give you my own set of guesses. So, for example, I wrote a book called The Algebraic Mind, and, and I laid out um, basically what I would take to be the tenets of symbol manipulation and said these are, these are non-negotiable. These are things that, as far as I can tell, really have to be part of any theory of mind. And that included the ability to represent um, variables that you can instantiate with particular values at particular times, to have operations over those variables, to have um, structured representation, so AB is not the same as BA, to represent a type token distinction, and ultimately to represent tree structures. Now, I wrote that book uh, almost 15 years ago, I recant one of those claims to some degree, which is I don't think that the human mind actually has the ability to represent arbitrary tree structures. It would be really handy if we had it, and computers make use of that all the time. So the, the directory structure for your files, for example, is a tree structure. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I don't think that we can do that in unbounded ways, and there's some psycholinguistic phenomena that suggests to me that we can't, like, sort of in, in the mind's eye, apprehend a full sentence. It's analogous to these change-blind experiments where, you know, you, you see a parking lot full of soldiers and there's a jet plane, and in between frames with a mask, a jet engine comes and goes, and you don't even notice because mm -hmm. you're watching the soldiers and the plane and so forth. So you have an <coughs> illusion of, of representing the image as a whole, but we don't really. We represent pieces of it, and we can reconstruct some of it, hoping that the world is stable. I think that in representing sentences, we don't really have the full sentence in our head. And so you, you're subject to kind of linguistic illusions that are like um, optical illusions. Like I can say the sentence, more people have been to Russia than I have. And ostensibly, it's a reasonable sentence. But you sit there, you realize it's what's called ellipsis. Something's missing. More people have been to Russia than I have been to Russia. It doesn't actually make sense. But you don't immediately notice the the... Um, problematic nature of that sentence because you don't really have the full sentence in your head. And take another example. If I say, um, it was the boxer that the sailor loved or something like that, you can get confused pretty quickly about what the relations are between the, the particular actors in the scene. If you really had a full tree structure in your head, you probably wouldn't get confused. Instead, what I argued in my book, Kluge, is that we don't have location-addressable memory in our brains the way that computers do. So in a computer, you have essentially a set of safe deposit boxes that are numbered, and you store things in those boxes. And once you put something in box 113, you can expect to get it back out again. And if you have that, then you can build tree structures um, in a very straightforward way where you just map the, the boxes onto the trees. But if you don't have location-addressable memory, it's very difficult to actually represent a tree structure. So I think mm -hmm. that one was actually an incorrect claim um, that I made in, in the algebraic mind. Mm -hmm. I stand by the others, and I would say um, there are other things, too. I mean, like I, I come from a language perspective, but if you were doing vision, you could have your own wish list. Mm -hmm. But that, that, those would start my wish list. Right, okay. And I would say that um, type tokens is one the, the distinction between like this bottle of water and bottles of water in general is something that you need at some level in vision and that we know surprisingly little about how the brain does that. But again, I think it's non-negotiable. At least if you have human cognition, that, that's part of what you traffic in is the difference between a kind and a particular instance of a kind. Mm -hmm. Right. So the example that you gave of, of our difficulty in processing these sentences with embedded clauses uh, is one of the ones that uh, Jeffrey Edelman, I think, used 
to motivate his simple recurrent network, which you were quite critical of in, mm -hmm. in your talk. And he said, look, I have a network which can generate some things which look a bit like grammar, and it has difficulties with particular types of constructions that are like the constructions that human minds have difficulty with. Now, you felt that the, the simple recurrent network wasn't powerful enough and that there needs to be something more. But in your talk, you weren't specific on how we go from the sort of the more computer-like FPGA uh, type mechanisms onto something which is neural circuitry. So have you got some examples in mind when you think about how that maps onto circuit designs? Well, I think we don't know enough to understand, say, a parser as a whole. So what Elman was trying to do in that model was to capture a lot about both syntax and semantics in one model. Um, and I think too much, in fact. So he was trying, he had a model where you could predict the next word in a sentence based on, on prior context. And syntax and semantics weren't even explicitly represented. All you had were individual words that followed one another. And it's true that some of what it did had some superficial similarity to, to what people did. But I think it got it right for the wrong reasons. And I think you, it's possible to break down systems in many ways and think that you you understood the system. But if you look at whether the system as a whole works, well, his system as a whole didn't work. There are lots of things about language it didn't really capture. Um, and so I think people made more of it than they probably should. That's one part of your question. The other part of the question is, you know, where do we go from here? How do we handle these things? Part of what I'd say is we're not in a position to understand a complete parser now or a complete seed and segment or anything like that. That we, <clears throat> What I'm arguing is that we need intermediate units before we can even hope to take on that question. Yeah. So I think parsers, for example, have to do some type token kind of stuff. They certainly have to do a lot of variable binding um, they're constantly doing variable binding. Even if the variable binding system itself is not perfect, they're doing a lot of it. Um, they're binding syntax and semantics together and t particular um, elements of the syntax trying to figure out the roles of things. And I don't think we're really going to be able to unravel that circuitry until we can at least, say, recognize the circuitry that underlies a binding and, and say, okay, it's invoked here in this way. Otherwise, it's just too unconstrained. I mean, you could think from a computer science perspective, having Lisp enables you to do variable binding and to represent tree structures. But once you have Lisp, then you can build lots of different parsers, you know, starting from this corner or that corner, this kind of search or that kind of search. But you couldn't, you couldn't even understand the differences between those if you didn't first understand the, the basic elements, the atoms of the language. But, but before we get to that, Tony, because I think we made a bit of a jump sure. now into this, the modeling exercise that I think we have a lot to discuss there, because Gary, you took a very specific a line of attack, if you want, to, to, to substantiate this point that we also need to give more room to, let's say, a functional level of consideration that could guide, let's say, this more neuroscience-oriented exercise, to which I'm very sympathetic. But then your approach was to say, well, you know, we ended up with this intuition, if you want, in neuroscience, of a canonical circuit, in this case, a neocortex. But you can also say the same claim would hold for, for other main structures in the brain. And what you wanted to say is, look, this is a misleading. This is a misleading construct. It's a misleading line of thought in trying to understand the brain. And um, so, first, and how how would you define the, a canonical microcircuit? So, what do you consider to be a canonical microcircuit? Why do you think it had such an impact in the field that you see it now as a dominant, let's say, paradigm, if you want? And then, of course, question three: What then is wrong with it? Well, I'm not going to try to define it. It's it's not my term, and I don't think it's a 
satisfactory approach. But I think the notion is supposed to be that there's one kind of circuit that's repeated throughout the cortex, that you'll see many um, instantiations of it, and that experience will tune different instantiations in different ways, but that they're all at some level identical. I think this comes from a superficial reading of anatomy and also maybe from a, um, a kind of particular scientific aesthetic, let's say. So the superficial reading of anatomy is the cortex is relatively uniform throughout its extent. Of course, if you say that in, in the room full of anatomists, they'll all get exercised and say, well, that's not really true. I mean, I look at this area and that area, and, mm -hmm. and you know, they're very different to me. Um, but it's, you know, if you just looked under a magnifying glass and you weren't an expert, you might reasonably say Broca's area and, and um, occipital cortex, they don't really look that different. They don't look as different as you might have a priori expected, given how different vision and language turn mm -hmm. out to be. Um, and so I think it starts from that. Then I think there's an aesthetic. I think people are looking for kind of simple principles to explain the brain. I don't see any reason to think that we're actually going to get a few simple principles to explain the brain, that that's going to be sufficient. But I think a lot of people are attracted to those kinds of theories. And this is not something unique to neuroscience. So people are looking for that in physics. There are actually arguments in physics about whether it's plausible. In linguistics, Chomsky lately, of all people, has been looking for kind of explanation for linguistics in a few principles. I don't think he's gotten a lot of mileage out of it. I mean, he's gotten a lot of followers, but I don't, I don't think that he's made a lot of convincing progress doing that. But I, mean, I see it over and over again in lots of different fields. In, in economics, people start with this model of rational man. And they think this one principle is going to explain things, but it doesn't really. And yeah, but wait, there's an issue now, right? That I don't think you're really denying the anatomy as such. I mean, in that sense, if you do well, inject in the thalamus, you will see that most projections end up in layer four of a six-layered cortex in, in, in our case, so, right? Well, I won't deny that there's a, a common background, let's say, mm -hmm. of similarity. But a common background of similarity is not the same thing as identity. Exactly so, right. So, so I think you it can hinges think, on that issue of identity, right? It, it does. So you can think like the hand and the foot, they're clearly genetically related. I, I used to know the number, like 95% of the genes, maybe this is in another organism, but you know, there's, there's a very heavy overlap between the hand and the foot in terms of their genes. But there's also some fine grain tuning that makes them do different things. Mm -hmm. And you might expect the same thing for cortical circuits. In some ways, my talk is, in, is a meditation on that thought. I mean, mm -hmm. I could have arranged it differently. But, but if, if you assume that duplication and divergence is kind of the dominant paradigm of evolution, you've got some set of genes, then there are copies, and that copy allows you to build something mm -hmm. new, whether it's a new photoreceptor with a new um, wavelength distribution or it's a new vertebrae, um, w whatever it is, um, there's lots of duplication mm -hmm. and divergence. And if you saw that in the cortex, then what you might see is from a distance, all this stuff looks the same. But if you look zeroed in, you might see the kind of right. tweakings mm -hmm. that make you know, a hand different from and a So button. what you're saying, to, to conclude this bit then, is to say, instead of just, look, we might have a common template, but in its uh, ultimate expression, there's a lot of variability. And if we want to understand function, we must actually focus on that variability as opposed to these common templates. Well, or, or the conjoint you know, function right, of the sure, two. Exactly. I, I don't want to... Ignore the template. I mean, a good example here, though, might be like if I gave you a breadboard with transistors and lights and, and, and so forth, you could build an AND gate or an OR gate, or if I had enough of them, you could you know, build all kinds of gates, and you could say, well, it's just one breadboard. But the logical 
or functional consequences um, of a breadboard where you have slightly different wires are, are immense. I don't know mm -hmm. if you, you probably um, mm -hmm. are old enough to play with these old Radio Shack yes. kits with, sure. the, with the springs and the wires mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So in some sense, you had a template that they would call them like the 150 in one kit. You could build, you know, a radio or, or an alarm, you know, or whatever by just instantiating that template in different mm -hmm. ways. And all the world's difference in the structural um, ways led to the functional differences. Right, exactly. One of the themes of, of this week has been because of the complexity that we see in an area like neocortex, let's look across species and see uh, how other animals' cortex is organized and to see if there are common principles and perhaps extrapolate from the variety that we see to what might have been some ancestral form of cortex, which you know, I think we all will expect will be simpler and will have less variety. And you mm -hmm. know, John Cass was talking about maybe five areas as opposed to you know dozens of areas in in primates so one strategy to address the problem that you're describing would be to say let's not try and build a canonical microcircuit based on mouse brain but let's think about what the original first mammal microcircuit might have been and perhaps there were only a small number of different microcircuits in cortex and once we've solved that problem and we could use it to address problems that mammals commonly have then we can think about how you modify that circuit to to get towards human cognition. I mean, is that a viable strategy? I, th I think so. Um, and you could look at, for example, central pattern generators. And there have been a couple of people who've made suggestions, like Sten Grillner we mentioned a minute ago. Um, you could look at central pattern generators and ask, just there, you could say, has there been duplication and divergence in that? Are there different variations on central pattern generators that you could use to do different kinds of computations? I don't know that anybody's pursued that in any great detail, but that's that's kind of a version of the strategy that you're talking about. And you could do that with um, you know, coupled oscillators. And um, there are lots of domains in which you could say, here is an ancestral circuit. What's happened to that ancestral circuit? I mean, in some sense, people are trying to map out vision that way. So we know that there's pack six at the top of this cascade. And in some creatures, it goes on to guide the construction of a compound eye. And in some, um, it, it constructs a mammalian eye. And there are these beautiful experiments that Walter Gehring did where you take pack six from a mouse, you express it in a fly, and you get an eye in the fly. You put in the fly's antenna, but it's not a mouse eye. It's a fly's eye. And so that says there's a very ancient code here that, that specifies something like build your light-sensitive organ here. And then, you know, the cascades diverge. And people, um, because they're more accessible tools, they are starting to really work out you know, when did this gene change? When did these downstream genes change? And I would like to see us do the same in human. I mean, the big problem, uh, <coughs> which Asif mentioned in his talk, is, is that we're mostly limited to kind of comparative methods um, with, with people. And it turns out that the nearest neighbor species, which is the one you'd think you want to study, doesn't have language. And, and language is obviously pitiful in our experience. So it's it's a bit unfortunate from our perspective as scientists that we can't um, look at chimps and, and you know, have sort of 80% of language there and ask what happened with, you know, their 80% of language. So at some level, it's hard, but at some level, I think that's exactly right, that it should be one of the prongs of the research strategy is to try to figure out a, basically a phylogeny of computational mm -hmm. or cortical circuit types. I think that that's essential. In fact, maybe the best we'll be able to do with language is to figure out these are the circuits that we share with mammals, or maybe these are the ones we share with vertebrates, these are the ones we share with mammals, these are the ones with primates, and there are these one or two that are different, and how do those one or two that we don't see attested, and we, we may not even be able to see them until we really get the EM under our 
um, belts in the right way. But eventually we might find one or two that are new. And it's really not going to be that language is those one or two, but how they work together with the rest of that phylogeny. Right? Language is going to put together a whole bunch, in my view, of, of different cortical circuit types that are all maybe going back to one or two common ancestors, but are really different versions of those. And that, that's what we need. But so now if out. we try to, to, to figure out the properties of this archetypical mammalian brain, which actually is the target of our own work, then in some sense, you also try, showed in your talk that there are certain, let's say, theoretical approaches, like this, the, the recurrent networks of Elman, you mentioned, and so on, that are not going to get us there, right? So uh, you were saying that you were making the point there that in the theoretical approaches, at least the ones you, you, you presented today, something fundamental is missing. So what's that? What's missing there? I mean, for me, the biggest thing that's missing is an understanding of variable binding. So I think we as a collective field of neuroscientists and computational neuroscientists and psychologists have a pretty good grip on hierarchical feature detection. We don't know everything that there is to know about it, but we have very good reason to think that it happens. We have some notion about some of the tricks you might need, like divisive normalization and so forth, to make it all work out. Like we have a, we have a grip on it. We have some idea of where it might live, how to build computer models of it. We don't have anything like that for variable binding. We have a few kind of stray voices, you know, speaking in the wilderness about it. But I think we need it. I think variable binding is as important to higher level cognition as hierarchical feature perception is division. So, so you you would be saying these hierarchical feature detection approaches might be nice if you talk about perception, but if we start to talk about higher level cognition They're or not feeding into language, there. it's not going to follow the same principles. Is that that's right? That's I d I don't want to overstate that. I I think that. Hierarchical feature perception plays a role in, in, say, speech perception. So it's not that language doesn't use this stuff. I'm basically talking about, like, the Hubel and Wiesel ideas here. It's not that I don't think that that has any role, but I think there's something else, too. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like, I'm not sure what an analogy would be. It'd be like, I'm trying to do math. And I've already got addition down, and addition is great. I'm never going to get rid of addition. But I need some multiplication and mm -hmm. maybe some square roots, too. And we don't really know so much about mm -hmm. how, how to do the square roots. We have a hint about the multiplication. We're really good at the addition. But we need a, bitter, a bit of a better toolkit mm -hmm. if we're going to grasp higher-level okay. cognition. Not because it's not going to use these other tools. I mean, probably every good idea in developmental biology toolkits gets exploited in, in language in some way. And one of the findings... I'm not a big fan of fMRI, but one of the big um, findings from fMRI, I think, is that language is really distributed way across the brain. It's not just Broca's area, something mm -hmm. like you read it in a textbook. I think language is exploiting, you know, all kinds of things from mm -hmm. theory of mind to hierarchical um, speech, I mean, uh, hierarchical perception in general. But that the part of it that we least understand is how we concatenate all the symbols together, mm -hmm. and manipulate them, and move them around, and that's, that's pretty essential. Actually a dirty secret to these hierarchical models of when you talk about perception. That is that, you know, on <coughs> on the one hand, they they scale really badly. Like, for if you talk about perception, you want to have different kinds of invariances, position, orientation, scale. But that means duplication of wires at a massive scale. So that means on anatomical rounds, it's very questionable whether even perceptual structures in the cortex can follow such a wiring strategy. And there's a second, I think, massive problem if you talk about variable binding, which is that ultimately it's a labeled line system, right? So I think if you talk about higher level cognition and you think about working memory and you think about variable binding, how to achieve that with labeled lines, I think it's going to be really a long shot. I think we have to rethink I don't know exactly what you mean by labeled lines, but 
I would say that for me, that's like a moment where you pause and you say, maybe one of my assumptions are wrong. So I don't know precisely what you mean by the labeled lines, but I would say in general that it would be very hard to get from the set of ideas that are floating around computational neuroscience to variable binding. Mm -hmm. So there are two options. One is to say variable binding doesn't exist, and a lot of people actually have mm -hmm. tried to make that argument. The other is to say we're missing something, mm -hmm. and this is a big clue, and that's the line that I'm taking. Right. The labeled line you can think of, take, take the Hubel-Wiesel model, mm -hmm. simple cells to complex cells. Every single synapse that defines now the complex cell has to be uniquely labeled mm -hmm. with a certain feature, otherwise your mm -hmm. complex cell yeah. cannot do this encoding, yeah. right? So, but that means that synapse cannot be used for anything else anymore. Now yeah. you're stuck with it, right? So, so I do think wires are cheap, and so I'm not completely convinced by your first part of your argument, but I think the labeled line stuff actually relates to the issue that I'm worried about. So labeled lines are fine if you're limited to encountering things that you've seen before. So you can, you can grow a grandmother node literally for your grandmother through a bunch of experience and, and use that to recognize your grandmother. At least, you know, there's some data mm -hmm. that suggests you might be able to do that. But what about the things that are unfamiliar to us, like the sentences that we haven't heard right. before? Mm -hmm. There, it's, it starts to, just on exponential grounds, it becomes implausible, like that you've got a node for my last sentence, right? Mm -hmm. You have to construct something on sure. the fly. You don't have a pre-labeled node for my last sentence or probably any of the sentences we said during the course of the mm -hmm. podcast. You have, might have labeled nodes for some idioms, like kick the bucket. You might really have a node in your brain that recognizes because it's an idiom, it's not compositional. You can't figure out the kick the bucket means death from the words mm -hmm. kick and bucket. And so you may have some of those, but at the same time, language is generative and there are some things that you can understand. In fact, a lot of them for which a solution that relies on a pre-labeled node is not gonna, gonna mm -hmm. cut it. There's gotta be a way of constructing a novel representation on the fly. And I think we, we lack understanding of right. how that works. Exactly. The, the talk very much focused on the cortical microcircuit, but um, you know, to get the functionality that you're looking for, then we might look outside cortex and you might wanna combine microcircuit types assuming that the, the concept has some validity in basal ganglia, cerebellum, who knows, amygdala. And together between these different structures, which everyone agrees have very different internal architecture, we might approach the kind of complexity that you're looking for. So yes, there's variability within the cortex, but it's variability on a theme, and you get the extra power that you need for something like language by having a systems theory of how the brain does something like linguistic cognition. I, well, first of all, I totally agree we want a systems theory, and I think you're right to point out that in the talk I didn't give enough um, attention to the, these other systems. So I think you're exactly right. The cortex doesn't work on its own, right? I mean, if you get rid of the subcortical things, for example, the cortex is not going to be able to do its usual work. It's clear that the way that the cortex works is in, in interaction with the rest of the brain. And I think you're also right that some of what I'm calling differences in circuit types may have to do with basically how those other resources are accessed. So maybe two things that I want to call different circuits, what they really chiefly vary in is in how much they're calling these other systems and what they're doing with the, those other systems. So I'm very sympathetic with that, and I think I just did a poor job of discussing it. There's a, a written but not published version where we did a little bit better job um, of at least pointing to that possibility. So I'm completely sympathetic to it. I think probably if there's any difference between me and you, it's that I think some of it's going to be at the level of like the difference between an and and an or gate that's actually local. Um, I totally agree that it's not going to be all local. It's going to be really important stuff that isn't local that has to do with long range projections and so forth. And I, I agree that I, I didn't 
emphasize that enough uh, in the lecture. But I also think that there are probably going to be some important differences, yeah. you know, within, within the, the immediate circuits as well. So one, one of the questions is, is how those differences come about. And the, the other theme uh, this week has been not just comparing species, but also thinking about development within a species. And mm-hmm. that was an aspect of your talk, because I think that you would agree that at some point in development, there is something relatively homogenous, and then we get heterogeneity uh, increasing across cortex. And at some point, you, there's no going back. This sort of equipotentiality of cortex ceases to happen. Um, and I think well, maybe... One slide that I left out, by the way, um, <clears throat> is just stuff from the Allen Institute showing that uh, gene expression differs from front to back and that the gene expression is more similar the closer you are to cortex. And that's one clue, and there are many other clues we need to put together. But that's one clue that says there is some differentiation here that's important. And it's important to realize you don't need a lot of genes to be different in order to build something really different. So you can get sickle cell anemia from one nucleotide change. You could make the difference between an AND gate and an OR gate with, you know, probably a single gene or or less. I'm not sure we literally have those things. But I think that relatively small numbers of of genes can differ against a background of many shared genes and lead to significant uh, differences. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the, we we had previous Terence Deacon as a speaker for BCBT, and uh, he gave a talk which would have been very appropriate this week uh, on this idea of relaxed selection, that there could be sort of junk DNA there, which is floating around, and it could be recruited for something like language uh, in order to create new functionality very rapidly. And it might even be recruited without necessarily having a mutation. It could be recruited by some epigenetic mechanism, as we also heard this week. So um, what was, uh, you could maybe clarify for us a bit more, is how much you think that these developmental processes that are creating these qualitatively different (coughs) circuits, how much of that is not requiring any external input and how much uh, would then be experience dependent, given what we know about the importance of culture and motheries and all these things for something well, like I, language? I think it's hard to put a number on it. I think that the right way to think about it is that the molecular constraints and the activity dependence are both critically important and they play together. So you can't really say, I mean, like people give these heritability numbers or something. They say IQ is, you know, 70% heritable. All that really means is we can correlate this much of the variation with the genes. And it doesn't, and it, the, the molecular processes themselves don't really work that way. They're not separable in a way that you can kind of partial out variance in a meaningful way. Um, I think the molecular processes are really important and must be understood, and the activity processes are really important and must be understood. I mentioned some, like, alternative splicing uh, mechanisms that might actually integrate these things, and I think we should be looking for that, too. I, in my talks, tend to emphasize the molecular at the expense of the activity almost as a political thing. So I think that most of the field pays attention to the activity-driven part of the equation and doesn't pay as much attention to the molecular side of things. So in computational neuroscience, except in a couple of small areas like topographic maps, where people actually know what the molecules are, people kind of ignore the the molecular contributions, and they focus on the activity. And I don't doubt that the activity is really, really important. I mean, that's obvious. Um, But I do doubt that we can get a complete model without having some grasp on the developmental molecular mechanisms and how they might shape, say, two patches of cortical tissue to be subtly but importantly different, such that they respond different ultimately to that activity. I think part of the reason uh, people are enthusiastic about activity-dependent generation of structure is that you can 
uh, perhaps more likely automate it. So that if you get the right powerful learning algorithm, and this of course was what's so seductive and exciting about connectionist models, and, and I think more recently deep learning, is the idea that if the learning algorithm is right, the system will just build itself given the activity. And, and the alternative which you're suggesting does imply for the sort of, the people who want to model computationally what's going on, that we're going to have to understand and build more of the infrastructure before those kinds of activity-dependent learning systems can take I, off. I think you're exactly right at multiple levels. So one is, I think you're right about the appeal. I mean, it would be great if we could have one algorithm that ruled them all, I and mean, that, that would make everybody's life easier. It'd be much easier to build you know, much better AI, for example. Um, but at the same time, just because it's easier doesn't mean that it's right. And I think that if you look at what machine learning, for example, has been able to do well and what it hasn't been able to do well, there are domains where bottom-up learning just doesn't seem to do the trick. So we are still struggling with common sense reasoning. We are still struggling with natural language understanding. We've got machines that can read license plates very well. It's kind of a variation on the Hubel and Wiesel kind of stuff, but we don't have machines that can understand discourse. So something else I'm uh, involved in now is trying to have a successor to the Turing test. And, and um, one of the proposals that I made is that we have a comprehension test where you ask the machine to watch a video and then answer questions like, why did Walter White take out a hit on Jesse or something like that? Stuff that would be easy for any 14-year-old. But so far, computers don't know how to do that, to, to watch some general kind of scene and, and understand what's going on. They could label things. They could say, that's a person and that's a person. But they couldn't necessarily tell you much about the scene. And that's because I think people haven't been investing the time to get the basis structure from which you can do the learning. Another way I think about this, and I see it, um, you want to jump in, but is the way I think about it is that a lot of work in developmental ro robotics basically starts with a blank slate, and I don't think that work has gotten us that far. You need, the intuition that you'd like a robot that's embodied, I think, is a very good one, but I think that people shy away from what is fairly hard work, I think, to build the right basis set so that you can then go out and learn. But now... We shouldn't sell computational neuroscience that short, right? Because yes, even with the interest in activity-dependent processes, these are often studied on the basis of some defined circuit. Mm -hmm. And implicitly that means that's the contribution of these, these EVO-DEVO processes that give you this template, if you want, on which an activity-dependent process is sculpt, if you want, the ultimate functional circuit. Well, yes, but like the fundamental intuition, I think, or result from EvoDevo is about conservation and duplication and divergence, that you have families of mechanisms that, that are variations on themes. Like, if I had to say there's one thing that EvoDevo has really shown us, it's like, you know, Hox genes, for example, mm -hmm. get used over and over again in lots of different kinds of contexts. And I don't see any reflex of that intuition in computational neuroscience really anywhere except maybe the topographic map work. Mm -hmm. But now, so, okay, so, so we started with this notion of canonical microcircuits in European not, not really delivering on understanding higher level cognition, in particular issues around variable binding that you need in language, okay? But then what's now your, your counter proposal, right? Where, what should we be looking at? I think we should be <coughs> trying to find a set of circuits rather than one that probably have a family resemblance structure to one another. So. In a computer, that set would start with things like ands and ors and nands and xors. You know, there's a family resemblance between those, but with very different computational repercussions. 
And ultimately, I think we're looking for something similar, maybe at that green level, maybe a bit, a bit higher. I made some specific proposals, like we want mechanisms for understanding sequencing, for example. And those, you know, that's a simplification, right? The sequencing itself is probably going to require that we understand things about working memory and, and copying things from buffers and so forth. So the, the top-down suggestions that I gave in my talk are, are really collapsing a number of levels. And I think really we need to iteratively do this process of, of finding intermediate computational units. You know, what, what can you do with a set of neurons? Or what does biology mm -hmm. do with a set of neurons? What do you do with sets of sets of neurons? What do you do with sets of sets of sets and so forth? And so I think of a parser, for example, as being made up of very structured combinations of all of these kinds of processes. Yeah, but Gary, in some sense, you make a dual proposal, right? Because on the one hand, you're saying, well, to make progress, we need some functional guidance. And I can give you a list of that. That's what you now sort of was, was elaborating. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you're telling, you also told us, look, we should rethink cortex in terms of a more, let's say, configurable and variable substrate mm -hmm. of a set of computations. Now, I think that these are two complementary proposals that you're making, or am I wrong here? Well, I see a connection between them, but I mean, it's an open empirical question. But the the notion is that we're going to find motifs structurally in the cortex. Um, the motifs may be variations on a theme, but there will be motifs. Um, and I'm talking at the neuron level. I know there's interesting work at, at the sort of you know, voxel level. But I think at the neuron level, <clears throat> we're going to find motifs, and those motifs are going to map onto functions. And we want to say, you know, there, there are 10 or 20 or 40 different motifs. They come in these different flavors. These are the kinds of computations mm -hmm. that they do. And once we have that level, then we can say, well, when you put those together, what kind of computations mm -hmm. do you get out of, of there? But now, in, in some sense, you're advocating, I think, a position that actually is also coming out of the community that's pushing canonical microcircuits. Like, for instance, Rodney Douglas, uh, who has been together with Kevin Martin doing a lot of the anatomy on, on, on this, on the notion of cortical canonical microcircuits it would, is now suggesting that cortical circuits can be seen as finite state machines. So that means you have computational configurability given a standard hardware template. And that sounds very compatible to what you're having in mind. Or is there a difference? I mean, I, th I think it's in the, in some sense, I think they're in the same family of hypotheses in some sense not. So one hypothesis is you look around the brain and there are these configurable finite state automata in different places or something like that. Hmm. Um, another is that the grain level of these circuits is, is smaller and they're not all finite state machines. They're doing other kinds of things. So, for example, finite state machines don't have memory and memory is mm -hmm. actually one of the components that I think is critical. And so if all you had was a bunch of finite state machines and it would be complicated. You might be able to pull the system out of it. I mean, you can think about Turing uh, machines and so forth as, as a possible argument. Of course, this is the direction they, they would like to go then. Um, my intuition is that's not the right way to go. I can't say for sure that it's wrong. And some, some level, what I'm saying is that the empirical research direction needs to go towards itemizing these things or enumerating these things. Mm -hmm. So it, it is possible, but I think it is unlikely, for reasons I've been explaining, that you really will have this one circuit. You have many copies. This circuit might be adaptable to do different things. I think the part of their view that I'm most sympathetic to is this idea that you could essentially reconfigure that circuit to do mm -hmm. different kinds of computations. Um, another possibility is there are more variations on themes the way I'm describing, where Maybe particular genes tell you to build this kind of gate versus that kind of gate mm -hmm. or thing, things like that. They're certainly in the same but school. Then, Let me just say one other thing. That's a different um, – thinking about that is different from saying, well, let's just 
build a map of the entire brain right. and, and run the simulation and mm -hmm. see what happens. But if you do talk about these, these primitive computational functions, how big is that set, in your opinion? As I, a prediction, right? I don't know. I, I would say the lower bound is like the 10 or 20 that I put up on the, mm -hmm. the screen, and the upper bound is, is you know, sort of unknowable. I mean, we, we have to do the empirical work. My, my guess from looking at other parts of biology is that there are you know, hundreds or maybe thousands, but not hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. that the ones that are there, get most of them get used a lot. You know, there might be a kind of Zipf's law thing where, where you know, a few of them get used only very rarely, and maybe those are, are actually critical for language. But a lot of the motifs get used over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of how biology tends to work, and that's right. maybe the best mm -hmm. guidance we've got. Mm -hmm. um, another way to think about it, I guess, would be coming from psychology. You could say, well, working memory is something you need in every computation or practically every computation. Sequencing is something you need in a lot of computations. Mm -hmm. Normalization is something you need over and over again. Um, tree structures you might only need in planning and language. And so you, know, you could tr try to get a handle on it that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I understand where you're coming from, but I think that where we go from there, it's, it becomes problematic in a way. Partly what you're saying is we don't know enough about the richness of the cortex to really understand how it operates. And that, you know, is is feeding into a kind of frenzy of let's get more data on the brain. But I think at the other time you're saying, look, hang on, we don't know, understand enough of the data that we already have to do this effectively. You know, so so I, I, uh, I think we're in a, a position now in our field where... Uh, if you like, the people that want to get more data on the brain are in a bit of an ascendancy. And are, are a lot of the money that's coming into the field is moving towards data gathering. Uh, and there's a risk that the people that in the past who've been thinking about building functional models of this, um, that approach is, is not being supported to the extent it was, perhaps because we haven't succeeded, because we've been working at different levels of description and fighting battles between symbolism and connectionism, for instance, which really weren't helping the overall cause. Um, so how do you see where we go from here? Because uh, my concern, possibly yours, is that alongside all this data collection, we need to build theories. We need to build theories at multiple levels of description. And I think at some point we need a principle of parsimony which says, look, we can't possibly include all the data. We have to leave some things out and see if we can, how far we can get with a subset of data. I mean, I'm basically very sympathetic to what you just said. I, I, the parts that I'm not 100% sympathetic is I don't think we have all the data that we need now. I mean, I do think that we need to do more data. No, we will never have all the data. We probably never have all the data. I think there's some specific places where I would like to see more data. Um, in particular, I would like to see more comparisons between different cortical areas. So I would like to see not a whole brain map, which I don't think we'd know what to do with, but like focus comparisons between some prefrontal areas and some motor areas and some occipital areas. What, what do they have in common? What do they have, um, what's different about them? And I think you need to map that at multiple levels. So um, I think it has to be at the neuron level. I think you have to have activity. I think you probably need to know a lot about protein expression, um, you know, all the way down to the synapse level. But I think the key there is that you want to look at different bits of cortex, a small number, and really try to understand what is uniform about them, what is different about them, how do the computations vary. And I think that should be the starting point where it's very focused on trying to ultimately give um, 
accounts of what computation is done there. So using like optogenetic techniques to probe these kinds of circuits and say, you know, if I alter the input, what happens? Does the same thing happen in occipital cortex as it happens in prefrontal cortex? There's lots of problems. This is not trivial to do, but in outline, that's what I would like to see done on the empirical side. And then I'm completely sympathetic on the theoretical side. I think that theory just doesn't have enough prestige in neuroscience, doesn't have enough money behind it. I don't think there are enough institutions in place to support theorists. I think theorists sort of are generally routed towards modeling very kind of narrow, straight-jacketed pieces of empirical data. They're not given enough room to, to think broadly and not given enough prestige. And I, I think we need to build institutions um, uh, to strengthen the theory side. I don't think that there's nearly enough for that relative to the tool building itself. But maybe the thing that's missing there as well for theory is that we always think about computation as opposed to behavior. Because what, what really matters is behavior. I agree with that in the long run, but maybe not entirely in the short run. Mm -hmm. So my concern is that I don't think we can go from wiring diagrams to behavior without some intermediate theories of computation. So I, I really do think that the behavior is crucial. I worry that too about these brain initiatives and behavior is not um, paid attention to enough. But I think that we need to understand the primitives before we're going to have hope of understanding the behavior. So you couldn't understand how Microsoft Word works unless you had some theory of computation underlying it. You want to know about registers and subroutines and, and um, object-oriented programming languages mm -hmm. and, and, and things like that. You need some intermediate things before you can understand some complex cognitive artifact. I take Microsoft Word to be a kind of mm -hmm. cognitive artifact in the sense that like, you know, it responds to different commands in different ways and so forth, um, sort of at the right grain level. Um, and we just don't have that intermediate I'm not sure if I agree with yet. that. I mean, in terms of behavior such as classical, as seen in classical conditioning or in operant conditioning, sure, foraging, right there, I think, I'm not saying it's a, it's a close case, but links to behavior are also established on theoretical grounds and they're pretty coherent stories. So well, there's two things to say there. One is I didn't have in mind retracting your gill for when you're doing classical conditioning. I mean, there... You know, I think we have most of the tools that we already need, but I don't think it's the kind of behavior that I had in mind. I was thinking about behavior like understanding a sentence or foraging might be a, a good mm -hmm. example, um, where you need a rich set of internal representations. Um, for those, I think we need this firm computational grounding. The other thing I would say is I don't see theory and computation as at all exclusive. I, mean, I, I see it as the theory that we're trying to develop is a theory that links the neurophysiology and so forth um, neuroanatomy with the computation. So the mm -hmm. theory that I want to see us develop is really one that goes from you know, the, the neural instantiation to the computation, mm -hmm. ultimately to the behavior. It's just that I think we can't immediately go from the neural instantiation to the behavior in any meaningful way because it's just too complicated without this intervening layer of explanation. And do you think we should be paying more attention to embodiment and society and trying to understand these systems? Or do you think the focus on the brain, brain is appropriate. I think those things are important. I'm not sure we're to the point yet where for the kinds of questions that I'm asking about, they're going to make a difference. I mean, ultimately, in the grand scheme of society, I mean, we want to understand how embodied people participate in society and so forth. But like understanding social structure is not something where I think neuroscience has that much to say yet. So like there's a field of neuroeconomics that tries to you know, derive economic principles from 
neural wiring and so forth. I don't think we're, we're really in a position I, I to do I was thinking that well in, in language that the way that uh, parent-child interactions scaffold uh, children's language acquisition, I mean, how critical is that to our understanding of how uh, humans gain language? For me, it's something that would come later, and I guess that's partly having to do with my background in language acquisition. I would say that all kids acquire language, even in a very broad range of social circumstances, ranging from ones where parents are kind of, the term I've heard is helicopter parents, where they're, they're, they're hovering around their kid, every utterance, they're, I'm, I'm a helicopter parent, I'll, I'll, um, <clears throat> I will disclose. Um, and then there are parents that don't really interact with their kids, and the kids learn from their siblings, or mostly by observation and so forth. And the system is relatively robust to a very wide range of inputs. There's an interesting question. It's not fully robust. So kids that have parents that talk more have bigger vocabularies. That might be partly genetic, which most people worry, and it's probably partly experiential. And I, I think those are interesting questions. But I don't think that we know enough about the basics of how the universal part of the system is put together to really be able to make sense yet of, of those kinds of things at a mechanistic level. So I still want to know how we represent one sentence in the brain. And once you can tell me that, then I'll move on to like, you know, why you learn this one a little bit faster than right. the other. But now, so, so to come back to the issue of behavior versus computation, uh, from a methodological perspective, um, the three sources of information we have understanding mind and brain is anatomy, physiology, and behavior. And actually, what what I believe is the, the correct methodology is to have a convergent validation of these sources of information on our models so we can identify what the computation is they perform, okay? okay. As opposed to first identifying computation and then going to behavior. Well, I, I'm not sure that's um, a substantive difference. So. I agree we can't access the computation directly, and we're trying to converge on, on what the computation is. But I'm not sure what the alternative is that you think that I'm endorsing. I mean, what I'm saying is that the computation, the characterizing the computation is absolutely central to putting the system together. And I, I can't tell you how many neuroscience conferences I've been to lately where the word computation scarcely is even mentioned. And I think in some sense that's what I'm railing against here is the idea that you know, once we have the circuit, the computation comes for free, mm -hmm. and that we don't have hard work okay. to do there. Right. Um, you go to neuroscience talks, and people explain their channels and never invoke the word computation, sure. and you don't mm -hmm. know what computation they're even thinking mm -hmm. about. I think that's problematic. But that means you would use the word computation in a broad sense, like what are the, the transformations or operations that these circuits perform? It is not necessarily like in the Turing machine sense of computation. Well, I'm interested in both. I, I think that the right full account of things has to involve both the fine level. I mean, like if you're, if you're talking about a computer again, you, mm -hmm. in order to understand how word works, you need to understand both the fine grain of like transistors and how they make gates. And you need to understand something like about the API of an operating system. If mm -hmm. you really want to understand how right. word works and not everybody mm -hmm. does, but um, to the extent that we're trying to reverse engineer the mind, it's sort of comparable mm -hmm. to someone who would try to reverse Microsoft reverse engineer Microsoft Word and build their own. Mm -hmm. Well, in order to build your own copy of Microsoft Word, you at least need to know what an API is, what a programming language is. And the people who built the programming languages would have to know mm -hmm. what assembly code is. Maybe you could survive without it because their different levels become insulated. So maybe when we study the brain, not everybody who is connecting to behavior needs to understand every intermediate level. But mm -hmm. somebody's got to be able to make the mappings between each of these levels that we're talking about. So. Right. When we talk about a computer, somebody can map between the transistors and the microprocessors. And even if I can't personally, I know there's an ordered 
ordered mapping that explains it. I know roughly mm -hmm. how it works, and right. we, we need that level of it. But I think it, with your Microsoft Word analogy, we don't want to start by reverse engineering a system of that complexity. If you know, if, if you're an alien, you wanted to know how that program worked, you'd probably want to get a hold of a much simpler text editor and try sure. and figure that out first. And we can do the same. Uh, obviously, in neuroscience for the comparative approach. And I think that the other thing I want to push you on here a bit is development, because, you know, uh, children don't, don't start talking in multi-word sentences uh, until they're several years old. And before that, there are various earlier grammars, which are much... My, my, my son's tw 20 months. He does a fair number of multi-word oh, okay. Yeah, well, but the, the uh, helicopter come on, dad, he's you know. your <laughs> son, Gary, please. He's my primary source of data. So, yeah. so the, there's this phase when they're, they're, they're doing a lot of two-word utterances. And, uh, you know, and surely there, there's some kind of uh, substrate for that, which will be interesting to understand as a precursor for the substrate for adult language. Mm -hmm. And to get to adult language, perhaps we should understand the substrate for that and build that, and then think about the mechanisms that we'll construct from there. I, I totally agree that we want smaller systems. I mean, when I say a parser is too big, I mean it. I, I think that, that on the behavioral side, we want to understand things like, how can you repeat a word? You know, very small things that mm -hmm. doing a whole language system is just outside the scope of what we can do now. It's like trying to do Microsoft mm -hmm. Word when we don't know what a text editor is. We don't know what it means to draw, you know, characters on the display. Like, we're really at a, mm -hmm. a primitive level of understanding these things. And we, I totally agree. We want to find simpler pieces. So how do you imitate a word? How do you um, recognize the difference between, you know, blue car and car blue? You know, these kind of very basic things um, we need to work out before we understand. How do you uh, comprehend language in the context of a discourse and you know all the things that are going mm -hmm. on around you? How do you integrate that? We're, we, we don't have the, the, these basic tools out of which such systems are built yet. But in the case of language, for instance, in, and this question of how we come to be able to, to use variables when we think, but perhaps that's something we we develop as we practice language. You be become able to, to use more and more abstract tokens and to realize that tokens are interchangeable and so, so on. Some of my own work gives a piece of an argument that the variable binding itself might be innate. I, I did some work um, showing that seven-month-olds could do a kind of variable binding. It was actually on the right side of one of um, uh, my slides. So I, I showed that kids could learn um, ABA structures or ABB structures and then generalize them to new words. So they don't seem to be just using transitional probabilities. And then as in um, what is typical in developmental psychology, someone said, well, I can do that even younger. And so now we know that the paradigm that I invented minus a control that I'd like to see run uh, can be done in newborns. So even newborns, and I know that's not a perfect argument for nativism, but there's it's at least evidential that newborns apparently can do a computation that I believe requires mm -hmm. Uh, variable binding. So on the particulars of variable binding, I actually think that that's part of our, our innate um, armamentarium. As to language as a whole, I think there's a lot of learning. So you might plausibly think that kids are born with the ability to represent arbitrary relationships, which you need for words. They might be born with the ability to concatenate symbols, even if they don't know what those symbols are. But they have to learn lots of things that are language particular. They may have to learn that you map syntax to semantics, or maybe that part is known, but a lot of the detail about how you do that might have to be learned. So, I mean, 
the most extreme nativist theories are like some of the ones that Chomsky was pushing in the in the 1980s and that I was trained on in graduate school where there are a lot of very specific principles like of what is a legal tree structure and what is an illegal tree structure. So if, if these two items are not in this geometric relation to one another, the sentence is ruled out. Stuff like that might not really be innate, mm -hmm. even though Chomsky argued that it is. The ability to represent something like a tree structure, I'm guessing is, it's probably not exactly a tree structure for reasons that I mentioned before. But my guess is actually that either chimps don't have that structure at all, or they don't know how to use it for new things. Maybe they can use it for motor planning, but they don't have the ability to say, hey, this is a useful mental representation that I can do, um, a representational format that I can do other useful work with. So getting, getting to the finish line, there's, there are two issues I would like to clarify uh, with respect to your proposal, right? So after criticizing the canonical microcircuit as being too restricted in thinking about the kinds of cognitive function we want to get, I was rather surprised that you were proposing field programmable gate arrays as, let's say, an example of, mm -hmm. of the configurable kind of computation you want. Because FPGAs, which, which are widely used for, let's say, real-time <coughs> processing because of their parallel operation, are actually a, a very paradigmatic example, if you want, of, of a, a canonical microcircuit repeated many times in silicon. But configurable one, crucially. Right. So, I mean, and I chose that deliberately. So there is this at least superficial similarity, and yet it needs to be resolved with the functional mm -hmm. diversity. And I think that's what the FPGA right. gives you, is superficially, and initially, in fact, not just superficially, it is literally identical mm -hmm. across its extent. Then the configuration comes from instructions that say, you know, I want this to behave in this way. And the real difference ultimately comes down to, I think that that configuration can be partly done molecularly, mm -hmm. just as in any other right. part of the body. And that, that indeed then illustrates your point to say, look, there might be an, an initial infrastructure, as in the FPGA, but that then gets configured and that gives you variability across the microcircuits. Right? Right. This is roughly the idea. Yes. So the second thing is, to me, your proposal sounds very reminiscent of Jerry Edelman's idea of neural Darwinism, where you would say, look... Uh, developmental factors give rise to what he then called a, a primary repertoire, highly redundant, with lots of possible mappings. Um, upon that, selection takes place due to the engagement with the real world. So now you have your secondary repertoire. Secondary repertoire can perform complex functions through what he calls re-entry, including recursion. And then you would rely on what he calls value-based learning to accept rules of engagement with the world. So... So would it be fair to say that you're now a, a, a neo-Edelmanian? Neo <laughs> I'm more sympathetic to that view than I might have been before. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure that I would put as much weight on selection. Um, I think that I do think there's a basic stock of elements. I don't remember his exact you know way of thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, we, we may share that. Um, <clears throat> I think that the basic elements can be fairly sophisticated computation. So... Um, uh, let me rephrase that. I think some of the basic, um, I need another word here. So I've been talking about building blocks all yeah. along. Some of the basic assemblies of building blocks mm -hmm. can do fairly sophisticated things probably without learning. So my paradigm example of this would be imprinting, mm -hmm. um, where an organism sees a stimulus that falls in a certain class, makes basically a one trial decision about that. Um, I don't think that the Edelman notion gives you a good handle on that. I don't think it's necessarily incompatible. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it's a broad umbrella and you could work it out in different kinds of ways. But for me, I want to know why there are circuits like that. I think there are going to be some circuits at that 
level in language where you're really looking for specific stimuli and doing specific things with those stimuli. Um, and, you know, in, in that work, we know that, you know, Conrad Lorenz is not, in fact, as good an example. You won't imprint on Lorenz if you ha have mm -hmm. um, a proper duct to, to imprint on. So, there, you know, there's right. some specificity there to how those work. Mm -hmm. And that's got to be part of the picture. And I don't, I, I see how to shoehorn that into mm -hmm. his theory, but I don't see it as sort of following from it. Right. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot ask Jerry anymore because he uh, he, he died in May this year. Um, so then, um, so you're you're now in, in in this business of understanding the brain, also certainly from the perspective of language, and really, and also I think you, you made a really good case for for linking functional considerations with structural considerations, right? And not to decouple the two and say, well, let's just worry about structure, and then yes. it will all happen. So now given all that experience and also given your objectives in terms of resetting neuroscience, what's the what's what's Gary's law we should follow in studying the brain and mind? Pay attention to the bridges. Don't I mean you just said it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure I have one law, but I, I think what you said is right that that you can't study these things in isolation. Maybe that's the phrase if it's, you know, mm -hmm. it would be you can't study these things in isolation. You can't study the structure or the function mm -hmm. and expect to really understand the cognitive neurosciences. You have to think about the bridges. Right. And then, so four years from now, we're going to come visit you in New York or wherever you're going to be four years from now. And we're going we're gonna to challenge you on a prediction you're going to make today. So what's the one specific prediction you're willing to make that you will find confirmed four years from now when we visit you? Four years from now? Yeah, four years. It might be three. It depends how fast you're going to be. <laughs> I mean, the, these things are so subject to... The, the kinds of things that I'm talking about are research programs that aren't done by one person. They're done by societies. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot that's dependent on how society allocates its resources for how far along we get in these problems. Maybe the first thing that I think will be confirmed is that there'll be important differences in recurrent motifs at the neuron level. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll find sets of neural motifs. We won't initially know what they do computationally, but we'll say, hey, that's a number, another one of these number 17s. Now that we can mm -hmm. drill down to the multicellular, I mean, to the, to the circuits containing multiple neurons, we keep seeing this kind of uh, connectivity and this kind of connectivity over and over again. We don't know what it means yet, but you know, I think three or four years from now, mm -hmm. there's a good chance with all the money that's being poured into EM, for example, um, with good analytic techniques, people will be able to pick out those motifs and say, hey, these are, these are interesting, and with luck we'll have this not just in, in say, visual cortex, and be able to say the, the distribution of these motifs is different in prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex than visual right. cortex. That's gotta be telling mm -hmm. us something. We won't know four mm -hmm. years from now what it's telling us, but I hope in four years we'll at least be able to say that much. Mm -hmm. We'll be able to say, I see the stock of motifs is different in, in these two right. areas, and that's something that we can try to leverage now. Exactly. Okay, Gary Marcus, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much. That was great. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.